0: Hello and welcome to Live From AUA 2023 Highlights in Advanced Prostate Cancer. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we are able to continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, we would like to go over a few items. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Stephen Bourgien, for his tremendous effort to plan this activity. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our distinguished faculty, Drs. Michael Cookson, Alicia Morgans, and Kristen Scarpato for their time, talent, and expertise. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this enduring activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. The AUA is not accredited to offer credit to participants who are not MDs or DOs, however, the AUA will issue documentation of participation that states that the activity was certified for AMA PRA Category 1 credit. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit AUA University to view faculty, Education Council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. The AUA would like to thank Estellas & Pfizer Incorporated, AstraZeneca, and Merck and & Company Incorporated for providing independent educational grants in support of this activity. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. Thank you for attending live from AUA 2023. I will now turn the program over to Dr. Borgian.
1: Well, thank you for joining us today at live for AUA 2023 to talk about the management of advanced prostate cancer. My name is Steve Borgian. I'm the Carl Rosen Professor and Chair of the Department of Urology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and I'm honored to be able to moderate this very timely discussion. I'd like to introduce our course faculty. I'm here today with Dr. Michael Cookson, who is the Professor and Chairman of the Department of Urology at the University of Oklahoma. He holds the Donald Albers Endowed Chair in Urology and is the Chief Surgical Officer at OU Health Stevenson Cancer Center. He's past President of the society of urologic oncology and of the south central section of the aua he focuses on urologic oncology and education and has led efforts to integrate evidence-based medicine in clinical pathways enhance guidelines and improved education as a member of the aua abu exam committee and chair of the suos ocat examination he served previously as chair of the aua crpc guidelines panel and currently is the vice chair of the aua's advanced prostate cancer guideline panel an accomplished researcher, lecturer, and teacher. He's co-authored or authored over 250 peer-reviewed journal publications and more than 30 book chapters. He's recognized nationally and internationally for his contributions to the field of urologic oncology. Dr. Alicia Morgans is a genitourinary medical oncologist and the medical director of the Adult Survivorship Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. She joined the team at Dana-Farber to evaluate survivorship and therapeutic Research for Genitourinary Cancers and Their Survivors. She is a clinician and physician investigator specializing in investigating complications of systemic therapy for prostate cancer survivors in particular. Her work has included the study of skeletal, cardiovascular, diabetic, and cognitive complications of prostate cancer survivorship, as well as treatment decision-making in the metastatic prostate cancer population. In addition, she's been awarded several federal and foundation grants to investigate the cognitive effects of hormone treatments. For advanced prostate cancer, and treatment decisions in men with metastatic prostate cancer. She has nationally and internationally recognized expertise in patient reported outcomes and quality of life studies for men with advanced prostate cancer, as well as incorporating patient preferences and beliefs into clinical decision-making, as we'll talk a bit about here this morning. Um, I'd also like to introduce Dr. Kristen Scarpato, who is an associate professor of urology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where she completed her fellowship in urologic oncology. Her clinical and research focuses include diagnosis and management of prostate and bladder cancer. She is committed to education and serves on the SUO Education Committee, SUO Fellowship Committee, and the Young Urologic Oncology Executive Committee. She's also the Urology Urology Residency Program Director and Vice Chair of Education for Urology at Vanderbilt. Welcome, Drs. Cookson, Morgans, and Scarpato. When we think about the scope of the the issue that we're going to be discussing today, prostate cancer represents the most commonly diagnosed solid organ malignancy for men in the U.S. and remains the second leading cause of our cancer deaths. Deaths from prostate cancer typically result from progression of disease to metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and in fact, the incidence of metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer continues to increase in recent years, estimated at approximately 5% per year. Fortunately and notably, the field of advanced prostate cancer represents one of the most active areas of investigation in GU malignancies, with exciting developments in recent years in imaging for more accurate staging, therapies with enhanced efficacy, combinations and sequencing of treatments, as well as a greater understanding of the role for genetic testing in these patients, including to guide potential treatments. AUA 2023 included a number of programs covering these various advancements, and our goal here is to discuss A bit further, several of these programs. So let's start by talking about the opportunities and challenges with the introduction of PSMA PET imaging and what that's offered to the care of patients with various disease states of advanced prostate cancer. Dr. Cookson, you are the course co-director for Thursday's Evolving Landscape of Advanced Prostate Cancer course. You also directed the AUA Guidelines course on advanced prostate cancer at the meeting. And this topic of PSMA PET imaging was the subject of a plenary crossfire section. So, the 2023 updated advanced prostate cancer guidelines have modified the language um, regarding the indications for PSMA PET imaging. Let's start with patients who experience PSA recurrence after local therapy failure. The guidelines now offer PSMA PET
2: as the preferred staging modality? That's right, Steve. Um, It is definitely the first area where it was studied, and in these patients who have suspected recurrence, biochemical recurrence after failed local therapy, whether it be surgery or radiation, PSMA PET is the preferred imaging modality. This is largely due to its enhanced sensitivity, even in very low PSA ranges where it outperforms conventional imaging. So so as a follow-up
1: then, how do you envision going forward clinicians altering care in such patients based on PSMA findings. For example, um, the role of metastasis-directed local therapies may change here?
2: Yeah. Given the ability to identify uh, these metastatic sites when they're small and early, this has now renewed the interest in the concept of this metastasis-directed therapy. The majority of data to date is retrospective. However, there are some low-volume or oligometastatic that Usually referred to, there there can sometimes be three or less, sometimes five or less. But these trials that have been done have looked at avoidance of or delaying institution of androgen directed therapy, or perhaps reduction in progression of disease. There have been um, some of those type of therapies uh, studied, and then uh, of course the uh, vision trial, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, actually using theranostics and and really doing a PSMA scan finding out where the lesions are. These are usually currently patients who've failed multiple therapies and then directing uh, treatments such as lutetium towards those.
1: So so now looking at a different um, prostate cancer disease state that were addressed by the updated guidelines with PSMA-PET, the guidelines now introduce PSMA-PET as an option for patients with non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. So so I'd ask, how do you see PSMA-PET potentially being helpful here? And at the same time, are there concerns um, about detection of lesions on PSMA PET in this disease state that might render patients ineligible perhaps to receive therapies such as darolutamide or apalutamide that had been approved for patients previously identified in this state based on conventional imaging. So now they were conventional imaging, negative, non-metastatic CRPC, but they're PSMA PET positive. We've almost created a new disease state.
2: Yeah. So your question is excellent. And it, th- your question could actually be inserted into almost any of the previous trials that were done for men with advanced disease, right? We have a new tool. We didn't have it then. Almost all of our therapeutics have been approved based on conventional imaging. Having said that, we're gonna use PSMA PET in newly diagnosed high-risk men. It's gonna be used in the biochemical recurrence. It's gonna be used in patients suspected of metastatic disease, and in certainly in the castration-resistant state. So it's here to stay. I don't think we can really get around that fact. Now, if you said, should it really change your ability to offer a novel hormonal therapy? I don't think so. If you remember, even in the non-metastatic CRPC state, some of the trials included patients with small volume lymph nodes. And that's probably one of the most common findings we'll see on these pets. What I really think the future is, is it introduces opportunities to do more um, combination therapies with ADT plus those novel hormonal agents, and then maybe directed therapies where you know the site exists. So I don't see it as excluding men from treatment as much as I see opening up opportunities to treat additional sites, things we never knew they had before.
1: Yeah, certainly an exciting and evolving area. Um, And and to finish on this PSMA PET sort of moving through different disease states and how that might alter, what about patients with hormone-sensitive newly diagnosed prostate cancer, whose disease has been identified as metastatic on conventional imaging. Um, do we need PSMA PET here? Interestingly, the, the, the updated guidelines selectively remove the wording conventional imaging from the statement on how we evaluate these patients. Is this Was, was this a, a tacit acceptance that PSMA PET is going to be utilized herein? And if so, how do you see it being helpful in the, the, the hormone-sensitive metastatic disease
2: state? Again, great question. You know, for um, every complex problem, there's a solution that is simple um, and neat and probably wrong. So there's not one perfect answer for this. I don't think you would need um, a PET scan if you already saw a disease that was advanced on conventional imaging to offer the combination treatments, uh, the doublet therapies, the triplet therapy for you know truly metastatic disease. But in the future, again, we may be layering some additional, targeted therapies in there and it may serve also as a reference for response to therapy. So I, I don't know that you need it to initiate treatment when you can clearly see it on on conventional imaging, but it may enhance your management going forward. So I think it's going to be incorporated into the to the uh, staging workup.
1: Got it. Thank you. So let's stay then in this disease state of hormone-sensitive metastatic disease, which in fact was the topic uh, of a plenary panel session on Friday of our AUA meeting. Dr. Morgans, you are a faculty of of Dr. Cookson's course on advanced prostate cancer. Can you discuss a little bit about how you think through the initial management of patients with hormone-sensitive metastatic disease, what risk stratification tools you might find most useful, For example, many have have expressed confusion about high versus low volume and high versus low risk disease. How how should we be thinking about that?
3: Sure. Well, I think something that was highlighted in Dr. Cookson's plenary on Friday morning, um, which was really, really important and should be just sort of the backdrop to all of this, is that all patients should get ADT plus something. And I think um, as we think of that as being our sort of overarching statement, we can then dig into a little bit more, um, a little more closely, which patients should get what. Um, So when I say all patients get ADT plus something, that's going to be ADT plus an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor or ADT plus chemotherapy often, if you're going to use that direction to add then an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. Um, And and I think that Dr. Cookson's also gonna talk about ADT plus radiation and perhaps adding an A, and ARSI to that as well. So when we think about high volume versus low volume and and this high risk, low risk, I would uh, urge us all to just simplify. The only trial that uses high risk and low risk is the latitude trial, which was um, ADT plus abiraterone. And so it doesn't necessarily apply, apply as broadly as the high volume, low volume that we use in most of the other studies. So I, I would I would suggest that we're going to focus on one of those labels to really focus on high volume, low volume, and also to think about the concept of de novo metastatic versus recurrent disease after primary treatment of the prime uh, of the prostate because I think that's the other distinction that can be helpful, especially if we're thinking about triplet therapy, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. High volume low volume is going to be four or more bone metastases uh, with at least one outside of the axial skeleton or visceral metastasis. If you have any of that, your high volume and if you don't your low volume and that's the biggest distinction to think about things like intensified systemic therapy or consideration of radiation to the to the primary prostate if it's still intact.
1: So that's a super clear way of thinking about it. Thank you for that that explanation that actually does lead to to sort of the next topic which is that with several approved sy- systemic therapy options in this disease state as you've mentioned broadly categorized as chemotherapy and androgen pathway directed therapies how do you make that treatment selection with different mechanisms of of activity like this. And perhaps most notably, one of the hot topics here is what's been variously termed triplet therapy or treatment intensification, ADT plus docetaxel, plus either abiraterone, prednisone or darolutamide, who in your mind are the optimal patients for that sort of intensified regimen?
3: So let's pull that group out first, because that's going to be the group that we want to identify because we have the opportunity here to intensify and try to do even more. These are predominantly going to be de novo metastatic patients. Um, And so we know that de novo metastatic hormone sensitive disease has a poorer prognosis, more aggressive disease pattern in most cases than someone who's had primary treatment of the prostate with radiation or, or surgery and now recurs sometime later. This does get a little bit tricky because we do have those patients where we perform maybe a prostatectomy and the PSA doesn't go down and then we might do something like a PSMA PET or even standard imaging and find, oh, there actually was metastatic disease. I didn't, I didn't do that staging initially because the, maybe the Gleason score wasn't high enough or there, there was no indication that the patient was actually gonna be high risk. That patient population probably fits into de novo metastatic disease given the timing there, but that's a, that's a relatively small population. For those de novo metastatic disease patients, again, applying that high volume, low volume for high volume patients, those are the patients if chemo fit, we might think about using ADT, docetaxel, and either abiraterone or darolutamide based on those studies. So de novo high volume, that's kind of a no-brainer if the patient is chemo fit. For patients who are de novo metastatic and low volume, this is a kind of gray area. If the patient is seems to have aggressive risk features in, the, in their cancer beyond even being metastatic hormone sensitive, maybe P10, P53, some of these kind of poor prognostic uh, markers, if the patient is young and otherwise very fit, wants to be aggressive, you can think about intensified triplet therapy in that population as well. But for most patients with low volume disease, even de novo metastatic, I think low volume, we're really thinking about ADT and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, Um, except for that small population in the de novo metastatic, as I said, young, very healthy, wants to be aggressive. When we think about that low volume population, ADT, and then choose your androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, whatever you feel comfortable with, whatever works with the patient's comorbidities and drug-drug interactions, but intensify. Um, And again, this is a population where we're also going to want to think about radiating the prostate. For patients who have recurrent disease, this is going to be for most patients, ADT androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. If it's a high volume patient though, we can think about using triplet therapy, again, in patients who, are young, otherwise healthy, certainly chemo fit, and want to be aggressive. So there are some gray areas. There are some clear kind of slam dunks, um, but uh, but that's where your clinical experience and your your use of the guidelines, which have been updated, um, can really come into play.
2: Steve, can I comment on, you know, there's a lot of data in what Dr. Morgan's just explained, and, and you know, in preparation for our plenary, she really highlighted um, sort of the limitations that we're seeing and, and we need to do better as a urologic community caring for these men, the real-world data suggests that really we're underutilizing therapy beyond ADT monotherapy. And so while an expert or a medical oncologist or a multidisciplinary team can ultimately parse out triple therapy versus doublet therapy, it's really important for the audience to understand that with rare exception, most patients should be offered at least combination therapy with a novel hormonal treatment. And then we're really improving survival by many cases more than a year. um, And we're giving them opportunities to maybe even receive additional treatments that are currently under investigation that could additionally prolong their life as well as the quality of life. So really getting that combination therapy um, mantra going would be a move forward.
1: Yeah, thanks Mike. I think that that's a really important message that we want to leave our 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 audience with, which is the data on on the, the additional therapies here and the survival benefit and 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 still unfortunately kind of slow to have uptake and and see that that practice change. Um, if I could just follow up with one more question here Dr. Morins it just kind of came to me as you were you were saying that um, roll any longer for 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 the doublet therapy just to be ADT and docetaxel in the in this hormone sensitive state or kind of going by the wayside and if you're gonna add chemo should add triplet?
3: So so this is a great question. The updated NCCN guidelines say that if you're going to add the chemotherapy to your ADT, you might as well just add darolutamide or abiraterone um, assuming you can get coverage for that triplet combination and assuming that the patient doesn't have drug-drug interactions or comorbidities that are going to limit that, um, which is a very clear mark in the sand that, um, that, that I was a little bit surprised to see. Uh, the AUA guidelines do not go that far, but I think that they are sending a very similar message that uh, triplet therapy for chemo fit patients is really better than ADT docetaxel alone. So there should be few patients that we can't get ADT, docetaxel, and either darolutamide or abiraterone if we're already gonna use that chemotherapy. And we do have to remember that abiraterone is now generic and also has some flexibility in terms of giving one tablet with food for patients where there's really a financial barrier. So between the generic option and then maybe kind of tinkering with the, the delivery of one tablet with food and so with the prednisone rather than four tablets on an empty stomach, We can and should consider trying to get that triplet approach if we are giving ADT and docetaxel.
1: Thanks. Um, And to finish out sort of the management of the newly diagnosed hormone-sensitive metastatic state, um, something that Dr. Morgan's alluded to, Dr. Cookson, was the role of of primary therapy with prostate radiation in particular, local treatment um, for patients with metastatic disease. How how should we be thinking about this approach and, and in whom?
2: So there have been a couple of studies that have looked at what is that added benefit to um, giving local treatment in the setting of metastatic disease. And while the studies usually included all comers, um, and there was some maybe delay in progression with treatment with radiation to the primary, really the the data came through for survival advantage in the low volume men. So low volume disease, um, metastatic, consideration for primary radiation. The role of additional therapy or even inclusion of surgical treatment is under investigation. So really no role for surgery in those men at this point, but certainly consideration for primary therapy, possibly pelvic um, whole pelvic radiation in the low volume metastatic patient.
1: Thank you. And certainly be interesting to see as this evolves with clinical trial development and, and, and an ongoing trial that we, that we have um, known about from, in this disease state as well. So let's move to our next broad topic, which is the role of genetic testing for patients with high risk and advanced prostate cancer. Indeed, data have continued to emerge regarding indications and importance of genetic testing in these patients. And several programs at AUA 2023 offered education on this important topic, including courses by Dr. Joseph Wagner, Dr. Todd Morgan, and Dr. Hong Trong. So, Dr. Scarpato, you were faculty both at Dr. Cookson's advanced prostate cancer course and subsequently in Dr. Ross's symposium on PARP inhibitors in advanced prostate cancer, a therapy which has, in fact, emerged from an enhanced understanding of the genetic mechanisms underlying select prostate cancers. While we'll cover PARP inhibitors a bit later, let's start here in terms of indications for germline genetic testing. Can you speak to what are the criteria that clinicians should be following to determine if germline testing should be undertaken in a patient with newly diagnosed prostate cancer?
4: Sure, yes, thanks. Uh, Certainly clear guidelines exist and urologists play a really important role in ensuring that germline testing is done. So a newly diagnosed patient can be a patient who has localized disease or someone who has metastatic disease. So let's start with localized first. Guidelines would recommend that patients who are classified as high risk or very high risk should have germline testing. And actually we should consider for our patients who are intermediate risk and have um, intraductal or cribriform morphology that we consider germline testing. And then all patients who have regional or metastatic disease should be offered germline testing. And then, of course, taking a family history is a really important part of management of our prostate cancer patients and patients who have specific high-risk family history, so relatives who have breast cancer or ovarian cancer diagnosed at a young age or um, first-degree relatives who have prostate cancer who are diagnosed at a young age. Um, family members who have certain uh, high-risk syndromes like Lynch syndrome, and then those with ancestry like Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry.
1: Thanks. Um, And certainly an an important thing, again, to increase awareness of so that we increase utilization and uptake. So, Dr. Scarpato, our 2023 AUA um, updated guidelines state that for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive disease, somatic testing should be considered as well. Um, The difference between germline and somatic testing can be confusing for many. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what these different terms refer to, um, as well as why and for whom somatic testing should be obtained, particularly for the patient who asks in clinic, how is this going to change my treatment?
4: Yeah, so um, germline testing, that refers to inherited DNA changes. They're heritable. They pass from one generation to the next And these mutations would be found in all cells in your body, and they can impact the ability to um, enroll patients in clinical trials or be candidates for um, certain um, precision medicine, certain therapies, um, and certainly have a role too for cascade testing for family members. This test would be performed um, on saliva, blood, or you could um, obtain buccal tissue for analysis somatic testing that refers to tissue-based testing um, of not inherited mutations, things that are acquired after birth. Um, They're sporadic, not at risk for passing to future generations, but these are also important and can be used to guide decision-making. Somatic testing can be repeated because sometimes um, mutations can change. You may have a patient with a certain clinical situation where you're have somatic testing that's negative, um, but you have ongoing suspicion or something changes that um, maybe there is a mutation, you can certainly consider repeating that. Um, How is it gonna change change your management? It might not initially change management. It might be something to keep in the back pocket for later if a patient has high-risk localized disease, is treated, recurs, and progresses, That might indicate that they're a candidate for PARP inhibitor therapy or pembrolizumab. Um, And it can, uh, I think, importantly, have um, implications for clinical trial enrollment. Many of these clinical trials um, are for patients who have germline or somatic testing. Um, We uh, also can see that one test may be positive and the other may be negative. Um, There may be some overlap. And so in these uh, higher-risk metastatic patients, obtaining both is, is really important. Often the germline is done earlier in the disease state, and we obtain the somatic later.
1: And, and, and you mentioned, um, you know, one of the things clinicians should be looking for, uh, it would be a change in the patient's clinical course that might prompt repeat biopsy or somatic testing as well as germline what are some examples of changes? So new metastatic sites or is it a a change in pace of disease, PSA? What are the things that might trigger, uh, you know, somatic biopsy testing?
4: Yes. So I would say progressing rapidly through therapy, um, a change in their metastatic status. um, Those are all all good potential reasons to, to repeat the testing. Um, Dr. Morgans, I don't know if you have experience of repeating somatic testing in your uh, higher risk patients, but those would be examples that I would repeat.
3: Yeah, um, to that point, uh, Dr. Scarpetto, you know, when people have disease, especially maybe new liver metastases. That's where I often think about repeating it because then you can look at the histology too and make sure that this isn't a small cell or um, high-grade neuroendocrine transformation, which is going to be, again, the something that we would see on histology which where we need biopsy anyway. And then, of course, you can send testing on that tissue as well.
1: Great. Thank you all. So, so um, just into the weeds, perhaps a little bit to help guide um, the specifics of how this is done. Is there a preferred platform that you have, Dr. Scarpato, for the genetic testing?
4: We have a good relationship with uh, many different companies who offer both gem- uh, genet- uh, germline and somatic testing. And I would say that it's not so much the, the particular platform that's important. I think um, clinicians need to understand what is being tested and what isn't being tested. So having an awareness of what the specific panel is, is really important to know, more so than, than which platform it is that that you're using. Um, we, we happen to use Invitae in and, and Tempus as too, but um, there are many good platforms out there and they have a lot of um, patient-friendly information available um, as well and often can provide access to, to genetic counseling and so all of these, um, platforms, I think, are are reasonable, provided that we have an understanding of what is being tested because there are implications for that.
1: Yeah, so just as a follow-up to that, which you sort of alluded to, which was the implications of obtaining genetic testing, I think one of the concerns that's often raised about ordering genetic testing is the myriad of potential findings um, and the implications, both for the patients and their family members. Um, This can be challenging in a busy urology clinic to cover. So, you know, in your multidisciplinary experience, who should be the person ordering the testing, or should all patients be directed to a genetic counselor for this evaluation? How, you know, what's the workflow process that you envision might might be most efficient and, and best? I
4: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think people um, in, in the past, urologists have been kind of intimidated by genetic testing because of this um, this thought that we need genetic counselors kind of up front, but I would say that that's that's not the case. I think that we are all well-equipped to do pre-testing counseling of our patients and to talk to them about why we are ordering a test or why we would recommend a certain test, what the guidelines say, and then what the potential implications are. That pre-test counseling is important. The patient can then go on to have their test. And if there's a positive result, and there is a specific genetic mutation or a variant of unknown significance at that point, um, referral to a genetic counselor is appropriate. But I don't think that all patients need to see genetic counselors prior to um, receiving that testing. And so, you know, you mentioned workflow and I think that that's key here. Um, We need to have an established workflow and um, many of us with advanced Prostate cancer clinics incorporate APPs who are also well-versed in um, genetic testing and the implications and um, can be involved in in the um, counseling as well. But I do think it's something that um, we we are a little intimidated on. So maybe some more uh, um, guidance or some courses on how to counsel these patients prior to genetic testing would be helpful for urologists.
1: Yeah, completely agreed.
2: There's also, you know, that whole area of the legality of it. And that can be covered in the clinic, in the counseling, the Gina law, for example. Um, but usually we, we tend to at least highlight some things like um, there was a cascade effect. Family members could be affected. Um, there can be implications for life insurance, uh, disability, those kind of things. Not your employment, you know, not your health care. But the, the, the cascading effect is an important part of it. And so, you know, it, it should be very well covered. Where those genetic counselors really help, I think, is in those variants of unknown significance. Um, they, they, they're they like librarians. They look for, you know, searches to try and figure out, connect the dots and where the risks really may be. Also, future contact for those patients who had that variant that we didn't know much about, and now more is known. So. Um, but they're not all available in every part of the United States. So I don't think it should be a barrier to genetic testing, but certainly a useful tool when available.
3: So just to mention, there's a really nice uh, registry that's actually a, a clinical clinical trial of sorts that's run out of Johns Hopkins and University of Washington, and people have kind of been aware of this and referring their patients. It's an online registry called the Prostate Cancer Promise Um, And if you just Google that, you'll find that patients can get all this testing for free, which is nice. They're trying to allow equitable um, testing for patients as long as they have a prostate cancer diagnosis and they just have to say, you know, that they were diagnosed, they have a high PSA or tissue diagnosis and no no more detail than that, really. It's all free. It's outside of the healthcare system. So there isn't any necessary implication that this is going to be in your clinic chart. Um, and, and, and then if patients have a VOS or, um, or a a mutation that's pathogenic, they actually get counseling through this program. So, um, I think that the larger goal is to ensure that we have a, a, a more representative understanding of the genetics of our prostate cancer population and to ensure that equitable distribution of testing. And I use it in my clinic all the time for some of the reasons that were mentioned, including coverage and concerns about it being included in their
1: chart. Great discussion. Thank you to to all of our our panelists for that. Let's move to focus now on novel therapies for patients with metastatic castration-resistant disease. And perhaps um, the newest development in the management of advanced prostate cancer is the FDA's approval of lutetium, PSMA-617, for the treatment of patients with MCRPC. And indeed, lutetium has now been included in the 2023 AUA Advanced Prostate Cancer Guideline Update. Uh, Dr. Morgans, you were also a faculty member on Dr. Mao's course on the changing face of advanced prostate cancer. Can you discuss a little bit about how you think where lutetium fits in, in the ever evolving treatment sequencing for patients? Who is a candidate for lutetium and when would you use it? So,
3: lutetium is is complicated for so many reasons, um, but such an opportunity for our patients, again, to have a novel novel mechanism of action as an option for treatment of their advanced disease. It is currently FDA approved for patients who have had progression of their prostate cancer after treatment or during treatment with uh, chemotherapy and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. And this is really the population that was studied in the initial vision trial. Um, In this setting, we know that this, this drug is going to be targeted to PSMA expressing prostate cancer cells. And so we also need to make sure that patients have a PSMA PET so we can identify those patients who are going to potentially benefit from treatment If their prostate cancer does not have a PSMA PET um, positivity, so their cancer cells do not express PSMA protein, they are unlikely to benefit and they were not included in the trial population. So so that's really a biomarker that we use to select patients. Though it is approved right now, it is in short supply in terms of standard of care. And as this um, activity is going to be an enduring one, I'm hopeful that by the time you hear this, that... Perhaps that will no longer be an issue, uh, but currently in practice, there are some challenges in terms of starting new patients because of of supply chain issues. Uh, But that's where it's approved. We are expecting that that will resolve. It is also being tested in earlier stages of disease. Clinical trials are still enrolling um, right now in the metastatic hormone-sensitive population, and so patients who enroll in the PSMA addition trial can get lutetium in that setting in the clinical trial if they're randomized to that arm. And again, they do have to have PSMA PET positive disease. So right now it fits in a more advanced population as a sort of third line, if you will, um, strategy. But uh, I do anticipate that it's probably going to move forward. And as we increasingly have this available and as we get our PET scan availability and our collaborative multidisciplinary team working together, we're hopefully going to be able to roll this out in a larger geography to also provide that equitable care that we hope to and, and we strive to deliver as well.
1: Sure. So, so, so that actually kind of introduces a, a, a the next question, which you mentioned that, you know, one of the eligibility criteria for lutetium is the presence of a positive PSMA scan. Um, so for patients with MCRPC, how frequently do you, do you obtain imaging? Um, what might be your criteria to trigger imaging um, if it's not done on, on schedule? And, and is it, PSMA, that is your repeated imaging modality of choice for that. So just sort of speaking about how you follow patients with MCRPC.
3: What a question, uh, Dr. Borjan. So there is no strict guidance on how we necessarily follow these patients. And it's something that I think um, has been a topic of conversation because without that guidance, which is is tough to deliver, to, to be honest, I guess, because disease can be so different and heterogeneous in that MCRPC setting. Um, it, can be, it can be challenging to sort of give those recommendations. I would say if a patient ever has new clinical symptoms or a rising PSA, I repeat uh, imaging at that time. If I'm doing imaging to understand eligibility for lutetium PSMA 617, I will use a PSMA PET scan. If I am doing uh, a simple check to understand, is the therapy that I'm using right now still efficacious, or is there a new problem or disease progression, then I'm usually gonna be using CAT scans and, and bone scans. And it's not because they're better, it's just because we don't necessarily have access to repeat and recurrent PSMA PET scans. And I don't want to not have the opportunity to use that type of imaging when I need it to select patients for lutetium treatment. I do think that that's going to change over time. And uh, I do think that as we, uh, as a field, have some centers, hopefully, or have studies that use recurrent PSMA PET imaging over time and we understand what is response and what is progression on these scans, which are different and a little more nuanced, at least different than our current imaging strategies, Um, we'll be able to use those over time and understand what we're looking at. Because right now we also don't necessarily have clear cohesiveness around what does progression look like? Is it just some area looking brighter? Is it new spots? um and 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 how can early treatment actually potentially cause psma pet flare similar to our bone scans that might not be disease progression but is simply just increased uptake because of changes in psma expression on our cancer cells so i'm i'm I'm, i think i'm diverting a little bit from the, the point of your question but certainly new symptoms any concern for progression because of psa rising in general i also in the mcrpc setting will repeat my conventional bone scan CTs around every six months, even if none of those things are happening in patients, particularly as they get more advanced, just to make sure that I'm not missing progression that is not being signaled by PSA rise, because that can happen maybe 20% of patients. And I don't wanna get to the point of symptoms before understanding that they're progressing if I can avoid it, because we do know that symptomatic disease has a poor prognosis and intervening more more, uh, quickly can potentially prevent some of that and maybe get better
1: response from our therapies well I certainly appreciate you taking on a question for which there isn't a clear answer um, and uh, and offering us some guidance and, and clarity on what we could do practically um, in, in in treating patients you know in our clinics going forward um, finishing up on on lutetium here what about adverse event profile sort of of this therapy um, important side effects for clinicians to be aware of and and any sort of routine um, laboratory testing that needs to be monitored or obtained in patients that are being, being treated with lutetium.
3: Yes, absolutely. So, um, so lutetium PSMA 617, which is the the, currently the only lutetium agent that we have available, but I should signal that we expect and hope to have additional agents that are targeting different things or using different linkers or different moieties to, to get, our, our lutetium to, to the, to the uh, prostate cancer cells, these are on the horizon. So currently we're talking about um, lutetium PSMA 617, also called Pluvicto. What do we think about in terms of side effects here? Well, this is the, the most important from a medical perspective to really have clear monitoring from my perspective are cytopenias. And these can be a little bit unexpected um, and it's very difficult to judge going in which patients are going to have the most pronounced cytopenias other than those patients who go into treatment already having some anemia, thrombocytopenia. Um, So these are things that at least in our current practice, we are for cycle one testing, certainly before treatment, patients need to meet some minimal baseline parameters in order to get their lutetium. And then we check mid cycle around three weeks after that initial treatment, And we do a safety check prior to cycle two so about a week before that next cycle we do that mid-cycle check for the first three cycles at present this is not something that is necessarily standardized so just sharing our experience and then for the subsequent cycles as long as they've had really robust counts we're we are not requiring that mid-cycle uh check all the way through six cycles of of lutetium psma 617. Other things to think about uh, certainly are things like fatigue um, and things like um, some salivary gland uh, issues where patients have decreased salivation because they, there is going to be some delivery of, of radiation to their salivary glands, so they can get dry mouth, and that's something to think about as as well. Um, interventions there are going to be you know just drinking more, using some swish and swallow or sw- just swish and spit type. Um, uh, so substances that we can use to help with salivation, but generally patients get through that relatively easy. It's easily, it's really the cytopenias that I think, from a safety perspective, are things that we need to keep an eye on. We we can't just send patients over to nuclear medicine or radiation oncology um, and say, oh, you know, they're going to go over there for the next six to eight months and we'll just let them let them be, unless those groups have that sort of strict parameter around checking for for blood counts, because we have seen some patients that do need after treatment to have transfusions on a regular basis because there can be some effect on the marrow.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think all this points towards even further the, the value and benefit of multidisciplinary clinics um, where patients are being monitored and treated by, by the team approach. So thank you for those explanations. Um, let's move to the role of PARP inhibitors in metastatic CRPC. Um, Dr. Scarpato, can you outline for our audience just first the, the mechanism of action for this class of agents?
4: Sure, PARP inhibitors have really been around for some time and been utilized in other cancers. And now they've kind of made their way to prostate cancer because we're understanding the, the genetics much more. But first PARP stands for poly ADP ribose polymerase. And these uh, drugs work to target DNA replication, that, that machinery. Cancers, have a mutation, cancers that have a mutation in one pathway become dependent on another pathway for survival, and PARP inhibitors will target that dependent pathway, and particularly tumors that uh, have deficiencies in homologous recombination repair, like our BRCA1 uh, and 2 mutations, those uh, cancers are uniquely sensitive to PARP inhibition. And that um, targeting and, and that process is referred to as synthetic or manufactured uh, lethality. So basically, the dependent pathway that cancer is relying upon is um, is blocked, and so the DNA damage that occurs, um, those the DNA breaks, they can't be repaired, and it's deadly to the cancer cell.
1: So, so we talked earlier um, about the various indications and benefits of genetic testing in advanced prostate cancer, um, PARP inhibitors have essentially emerged as a form of personalized therapy. So can you speak a little bit about the patient cohorts um, that PARP inhibitors are indicated in? And, and, and then kind of more broadly, when would you consider, um, you know, in treatment sequencing, sequencing utilizing our PARP inhibitors?
4: Yeah, so uh, we'll start first with what's, what's currently uh, FDA-indicated um, there were two studies, PROfound and Triton, which looked at um, elaparib and rucaparib in patients who had metastatic hormone-sensitive, hormone sens- uh, hormone ca- castration resistant prostate cancer, with prior therapy, either androgen receptor targeted therapy or um, chemotherapy and uh, had this HRR mutation. So these patients uh, were found to have radiographic progression-free survival advantage and in the mature data, uh, overall survival with with PARP inhibitors. So Currently, those are sort of, that's the the indication. So someone who has metastatic CRPC has this genetic mutation and has been treated with prior therapy. Now recently, the Triton 3 trial came out and looked at patients who had not had chemotherapy, whereas in the, the, um, in the Triton 2 trial, um, they uh, had both chemotherapy and an androgen receptor-targeted agent. And so now that they don't need necessarily both, both therapies for Rucaparib. Now there have been several um, exciting recent trials looking now at m- using PARP inhibitors in the first line setting for metastatic CRPC in combination with um, an antigen receptor targeted therapy. And there's uh, a reason, there's there's thought to be a, a synergistic effect between the PARP inhibitor and the androgen receptor targeted therapies. And I don't think we know exactly the mechanism for that, but it's thought that there's um, some sort of synergy based on creating kind of like a BRCA-ness, a kind of a, a sensitive, increased sensitive state with the combination of those um, with the combination of those therapies. And the results from these trials, um, Magnitude, Propel, and talipro 2 indicate that there is a benefit. Um, you And that's in the first line setting, so not having received prior therapy. I think there are some some debates that our, our medical yeah. oncology colleagues um, might you might hear about in relation to um, trial design, they weren't all testing for these homologous recombination repair genes up front. Um, In Propel, there was retrospective um, HRR testing after patients were were randomized. And so is, is there a benefit in patients who don't have a mutation? I think the data is abundantly clear that patients who have BRCA mutations benefit the most from PARP inhibitors. There is a signal that that maybe some patients who don't have those mutations may derive uh, some benefit, but currently what, what would I do? Certainly the FDA indications for a patient um, who is blown through other therapies, I would offer a, a PARP inhibitor in that setting for um, metastatic castration-resistant patients with a mutation. And honestly, with the with the newer data, I think in the first line setting, using PARP inhibitors in combination with our BACRA, BRCA positive patients would be a reasonable
1: option. Thank you. Um, lots evolving here, and that's you know certainly mm-hmm. going to be advancing as our tri- as those other trials sort of mature and we find out more and more going forward. Um, in our final sort of segment of this of this. Um, discussion here. Let's talk about what might be some potential barriers um, to therapy and, and, and some of the challenges of, of, of treating patients uh, with advanced prostate cancer. Let's start here, Dr. Morgans. You know, how do you incorporate patient comorbidity status into selection and sequencing for patients with metastatic CRPC?
3: So I think that the most uh, pressing one here is to understand if the patient is chemotherapy fit or not. And in medical oncology, we typically define this as patients having an ECOG performance status that that really means that they're up, moving around, able to do things um, and awake for at least half of the day. Um, For patients who spend more than that amount of time sleeping, resting, um, that really suggests that chemotherapy actually could shorten their lifespan or cause more harm than good. And that is not a population where we would want to use chemotherapy as, as a treatment. So that's that's one main, main thing. For the androgen receptor signaling inhibitors, particularly abiraterone and enzalutamide, which if we haven't used them in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting, we will want to use an MCRPC. Uh, we do have to think about cardiac comorbidity. So for patients who have kind of decompensated heart failure, patients who um, really do have issues with fluid retention and edema, these are not necessarily going to be patients who are going to want to use abiraterone in um, because you can have some increased fluid retention there and and that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing for for that patient population. When we think about patients perhaps who have a a fall risk and have some frailty and, and high risk of fall, enzalutamide has been associated with falls Um, in some studies and so something that we want to think about with that particular agent and the other thing I think about there is really uncontrolled actually for both of these drugs uncontrolled hypertension we want to get that blood pressure under control before we start one of these androgen receptor signaling inhibitors because they can increase blood pressure as well for any of our patients with any of the medicines that we use we do have to run those medicines through a pharmacy system that has their other comorbid medications included because there can be drug-drug interactions that we do need to be aware of when we're ordering these agents. And that could be any of our medications, including, of course, the PARP inhibitors. So these are some of the main things. And and when I think about those patients who might have MSI high status or high TMB or have Lynch syndrome mutations either in their tumor or in their germline, I love to see those patients because certainly pembrolizumab can be highly effective. But in terms of all of the drugs that we use, this can be one where the side effect profile is generally pretty mild. And so even in patients who, at least in my clinic, are not going to be fit for any other treatment, pembrolizumab can be a drug that we can still deploy for, for many of those patients. So that's that's kind of the, the, the basics. Uh, and, and hopefully, again, trying to get as many of these drugs to our patients as possible, sequencing them drug after
1: drug. And and to just kind of bring forth two other drugs and with different mechanisms in, in the MCRPC population, when would you consider using Cipulios LT or radium-223?
3: So, um, so great question here, too, of course, as all of your questions have been. Um, so cipiolus LT, it's a unique population as both of these drugs are. This is going to be an asymptomatic population, one that typically does not have a large burden of visceral metastases, particularly liver metastases, um, because we would not want uh, a patient who has really aggressive disease, a patient who is in visceral crisis, uh, a patient who needs a rapid response to be treated with cipiolus LT, and, and patients who are highly symptomatic are not going to be the population here either. Um, and, and I like to try to Work this in for appropriate patients, even as they're progressing, if that's a slow progression into that initial phase of MCRPC. And sometimes that can be, you know, sometimes it's more like a, a lion than like a lamb, but when it is like a lamb, that's where I, I do try to use Sipulus LT, kind of sneak it in, hopefully get some benefit from it. It is hard to know. We do know, too, that patients who have a lower PSA um, may have a better response to Sipulus LT. So when PSAs are below, say 25 or so, I also do try to again kind of prioritize that as an option for those patients. And there is some indication that our Black patients may benefit even more than our white or other uh, ethnic patients. So we want to make sure that we want to, you know, of course think about it for all of our patients, but don't miss an opportunity when there may be a patient population that could benefit even more. When we think about radium, this is generally going to be a symptomatic population. Those symptoms do not have to be restricted to bone pain alone. There are other symptoms like fatigue that might be a symptom that could push us to say, this is a symptomatic patient, radium can be uh, appropriate here. Um, And radium of course is gonna be restricted to a population with bone only metastatic disease, lymph nodes, visceral metastases are not going to be affected by treatment with radium. And when I think about it, I wanna try to sneak this one in before the patient has more widely metastatic disease that may be in organs or lymph nodes. If I have a window of opportunity with bone-only metastatic disease, that might be an option there. And for this treatment, like most of our treatments, the more cycles we can get in, the more effective that treatment is going to be. And there is evidence that the earlier we use it in the disease state, the more uh, opportunity we will have to get in more cycles of treatment.
1: Perfect, thank you for that. Very, very helpful. Um, Dr. Scarpato, one issue that was discussed at the Evolving Landscape of Advanced Prostate Cancer Treatment course on Thursday, where you were a faculty, was setting up multidisciplinary clinics for management of advanced prostate cancer patients. Can you speak to how urologists can interact with medical oncologists to jointly care for patients who experience disease progression, and when, in your mind, perhaps the, the quarterback of care should be transferred?
4: Yeah, well, we we can and should interact very kindly and collegial with our colleagues in medical oncology, but multidisciplinary care is really the name of the game in advanced prostate cancer. And whether it's medical oncology, cardio oncology, radiation oncology, uh, pharmacy, you know, even palliative care, there are it takes a, a team to care well for these patients. And as the urologists, we're often the ones who first meet with the patients have established that relationship and um, continue to follow along and, and manage these patients sort of uh, consulting and working with our, our multidisciplinary colleagues as necessary. I think when you, when you refer a patient to medical oncology and how much you manage versus how much they manage really kind of depends on your clinic setup. Are you set up with APPs and a team to regularly check labs on these patients? We heard about kind of the the frequency of follow-up that is required and some of the um, side effects that can occur. Do you have a pharmacist who's assigned to you in clinic that can kind of help with some of these drug-drug interactions or not? Um, often, I think when patients become metastatic, that is when we involve our uh, medical oncology colleagues, and then it's a lot of um, back and forth and, and open communication that really is patient first, patient focused, and it really a team approach to this complex disease state that, as we've said many times, is rapidly evolving.
2: As she was saying that, it kind of occurred to me that we've really grown from almost like a basketball team number to a football team number. When you start throwing in things like cardio oncology and nutrition and the team just keep geneticists and genetic count. It, the team's getting bigger. So you use all the resources you can on your team where you're practicing and it enhances the care.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. And I think maybe as a, a, a final point here, Dr. Cookson, we'll ask you, you know, in in parallel with with what we've discussed here today, increasing attention has been directed towards what's termed financial toxicity to patients of advanced prostate cancer care. And going forward, as new agents such as lutetium uh, continue to enter the landscape and existing agents have expanded indications, how do you envision and see this this financial toxicity impacting the placement and sequencing of of therapies for patients?
2: Well, that's a another great question and you know as surgeons and you know urologists we're really trained about the adverse consequences of our surgery and then as clinicians treating men with advanced disease we tend to think about side effect profiles of the medications and occasionally those drug drug interactions but the financial toxicity has been largely ignored and we're not trained i wasn't trained about that in medical school in residency etc but it's a big deal and these social determinants of health and health-related social needs, they they really impact the patients. Financial toxicity isn't just like the out-of-pocket cost, but it's you know loss of productivity at work, it's debt that accumulates. It can even, you know, translate into housing and food insecurity. So it's a big deal. And these trade-offs matter because the consequences of them include uh, not just Overall survival, but quality of life and access to the care, whether they'll even engage in care. So, I'm certainly no expert here, but we are underutilizing financial um, tools like patient assistant programs, uh, using navigators who can help. Um, Of course, there's federal work being done to try and mitigate that through oncology care models and 340B for some of the large centers, but there's a lot of work to be done whenever it comes to prescribing medications, we need to be very sensitive to the cost of those and really try to help patients to understand and navigate them into those assistance programs. Um, If we have any time left, Alicia may wanna add a little bit to that.
3: I would, I would just encourage us also to look online. So there is a program through some of the, some of the advocacy organizations have programs that patients can engage with directly. Zero 360 from the zero prostate cancer advocacy group is one that I've sent many patients to, and, and they've been able to help find, you know, options for, for patients. But I think you, you discussed it beautifully, Mike, and, and as we continue to care for the whole patient, I I know that we're going to need to continue to focus here
1: as well. Well, wonderful. I, I, I'll i wrap up here just by thanking Drs. Cookson, Morgans, and Scarpato for your time, your expertise here, taking to discuss this, this timely and important topic uh, with us. Uh, very much appreciated. Um, and thank you again.